Welcome to the Church of Mabus Radio Show. It's Friday night, 7.08 p.m. Central. Listen to United Public Radio, 107.7 FM, New Orleans. And I, the only rule I forgot to say, it, rules, I hate rules, but try not to say the F word. And that's the only one. <laughs> but, uh, and my co-hosts break it all the time, but Jeffrey's good. So I, I, don't have to I worry. broke it once. Oh, I yeah. Once. <laughs> all right. Shh, let's not, shh, shh. <laughs> but anyway, it's fine. But uh, check out Dead Sky Publishing. They have these weird West splatter Western books that are amazing. A lot of their authors are coming on. We just had Chad Lutsky. Uh, there's some others coming on in the, in the future. But it's deadskypublishing.com. And they just put out a, a weird Western anthology book with Al going back. Remember, he's been on the show. He's great. Love his books. Uh, also, uh, Joe R. Lansdale, who's been on the show, he's in it. There's a lot of cool authors with little, you know, chapter like i guess weird west stories it's an anthology that's dead sky publishing and then a book here my punk rock life the photography of marla watson from earth island books that's earthislandbooks.com and it's a lot of photos that she's taken of the vandals the addicts the dam the misfits black flag bad religion it goes on and on and on but the book is my Punk Rock Life, The Photography of Marla Watson, and that's EarthIslandBooks.com. That's really cool. And then real quick, these three, The Dead Take, The A-Train, New York is a Hell of a Town, Cassandra Call, and Richard Codry. Richard writes some great stuff. Uh, that's Tour Nightfire, The Dead Take, The A-Train, Nestlings, Nat Cassidy, that's a tour night fire, a new one they came out that just came out nestling. There's no place like home, Nat Cassidy. Then the last one, Zoe is too drunk for this dystopia. Jason Pargan, I believe he just changed his name. It was a different name. And I know he did that book, John Dies at the End, that Don Coscarelli did the movie of. So it's, I don't know if this is, it may be connected to all those, but it's the same Arthur. But Zoe is too drunk for dystopia, St. Martin's Press. So there we go. Great show tonight. We got Jeffrey Shanks here tonight. Uh, Jeffrey and Jeffrey, and uh, <laughs> that's weird. But <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make Jeffrey the name more positive tonight. Jeff squared to make up for the Dahmer <laughs> th to make up for the Dahmer thing. So I just. <laughs> but anyway, we got Stephen Flowers here. Great to have you here, Stephen. Great to be here. That's great. I feel like a game show host. <laughs> Welcome to The Price is Right. Stephen's new book is uh, Gothic Meditations at Midnight. And uh, uh, I'll read the bottom of it if my thing will quit flashing. PDF. <laughs> Esoteric commentaries in classic horror literature and film, 1919-1975. Uh, what was that weird little beep noise I just heard? Sound, some, I don't know. It sounded like Love I thought it. someone came in. I think, I think we lost Stephen for a second, but he came uh, right back. Okay. Right, okay. you're 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 going away, and have a, a buffering symbol, and different things are going on. Well, you're there now, and we can hear you. Okay. Uh -huh. If anything happens, just reclick the link and come back. Yeah, but you okay. should be okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, Stephen, it's great to have you here. Uh, relate so much to the, the the monster connection that you have in the book, and it's strong. And uh, my story, I don't want to get into it, you know, forever because I bore myself with it. But just to say, when I was younger, I had to, I went through testicular cancer and uh, chemo 
And it was a weird time for me because, uh, hell of a way to start a show with this story. But when I was younger, I had an incident where I was at home and I was self-pleasuring and got caught. And uh, someone told a friend and then the whole school found out in ninth grade and hundreds of people, hundreds of people made fun of me and made me feel guilty for it. Like it was terrible. Teachers would walk up to me and say, well, you should shake your hand and go, Oh no, I don't know where your hands have been. And me the whole time, I felt like I did something horrible. And then anyway, the next year I got testicular cancer. So that was that was at 17. And let's just say an abusive father who's passed now, stress drove him that way in this world, which will do that to many a man. And yeah. and I escaped into monsters and at uh-huh. times felt like the monster. <laughs> like I felt like I turned into Nosferatu during chemo. When I came back to school, kids called me a Satanist and a, a vampire because I was pale. I kind of looked at like the powder guy, you know, from that movie powder. I, I, well, why not just go on? And then, uh, yeah, I kind of just embraced that and it yeah, protected sure. me on many levels. And, yeah. uh, but anyway, then my dad passed away and I began to have crazy weird paranormal experiences with multiple witnesses from ufo to beings of light and that's why we do the show but that monster element that's definitely a part i i get it so much like it's definitely and me and jeffrey are just talking about this dark side creativity it's a way for people that are afflicted to tune into that creatively to, you know, maybe not get on death row or maybe not become Jeffrey Dahmer. So that's what it's about creativity and all this, but please tell us more about the monster. I make that connection. uh, The idea of folk tales, Grimm's tales and so forth uh, are, uh, have this component wherein, those tales were horrifying, of course, in the original. They were kind of watered down sometimes in translations, but uh, they were pretty uh, gruesome. And the idea is, okay, so your, your grandmother tells you this story, right? There were no movies in, the, in 1830. Uh, or, uh, she's telling you, so the, it's gruesome, but it's safe, you see? And so that's the way that these monsters were to uh, the monster kids, uh, kind of a sociological thing. Uh, all of the kids of my age, all of our parents, my, our fathers were World War II veterans. And some of them themselves were monsters, not because they have their experiences. I have this uh, kind of thing. My father didn't see action. He was up in Alaska. Uh, working on the railway lines to uh, get to uh, supplies to Russia and that sort of thing. But anyway, the men who did see action, they either were uh, in the bottle or they were extremely, they were sadists, you know, they were mean and, and did incredibly horrible things, but they were just PTSD. We just didn't have a name for it. And, and so uh, a lot of kids were afraid of their fathers, but these uh, uh, films, the, the actors were of that generation. Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, these were like our old men or whatever, but they were our friends at the same time. And, and the idea that they, ha- they too are, are monsters, they are horrifying, 
but they're safe, right? Yeah. And so I, I didn't wasn't thinking that as a kid, although a lot of times I, the, some of the horrible things that I would see, uh, I recount one about this uh, story called The Richest Man in, Bo in Bogota. Uh, it was made into the, it was about the country of the blind, H.G. Wells' story about a, a man who finds these people who have no eyes. They're blind. And uh, so they discover that he is afflicted with eyeballs. So they're going to, they tie him to a post and they're going to burn his eyes out to cure him of this affliction. And it's in there. And so that kind of ooh, upset me as a little kid. And so the next day I remember acting this out you know tie a kid to a pose have a something say i hold here the fire of healing so we played it out it was just a that was part of my instinctive magical practice right i just i exercise that that's uh, cool and not thinking of that way just kids playing but i could now looking back on it i can see how these kinds of things worked and how right monster movies themselves work on you're uh, using that as magic you created a ritual out of that yeah right right and made that made that more real for you i mean that's magic yeah you know? so um, that's a, a, a example uh just in my that's what uh, the book has almost every chapter has a component uh, a memoir kind of component, like how what how i personally relate to these different uh themes Right. And so, and, and I had a personal relationship in a way as a kid with each one of these things, most of them, sometimes later things, but, uh, but there's a personal side to almost every chapter. That That's one of the things I really enjoyed, you know, in, in reading your book, I, I didn't make it quite all the way through it before the uh -huh. show. And so I had to skim some of the later chapters, but, but especially going into it and, and and, and maybe if you could maybe talk about what it was like to be a monster kid for those who don't know, because so for me, you know, I was in this too, just like Jeffrey. Right. But I was a little bit too young to be a true monster kid. Right. I was I caught the residual effects of it in the late 70s, early 80s. Right. When, you know, the, the films are still coming on, you know, the you know, famous monsters of Filmland, the magazine, of course, was still around. But it wasn't like your generation going through this in the 60s with the, the the aurora models and that whole thing and all those things that tied it together and Forey ackerman and all of that i have a guess a little bit for those who didn't maybe didn't experience that and didn't know what it was what it, i mean you put that in context a little bit coming out of that post-world war ii period nice look oh, at that there it is oh man <laughs> that's really cool what does that what does that mean to be a monster kid? What is what is well, the significance of those Aurora models? Let's talk about that because it's so cool. Are, like I said, I think there's a line in there where you know uh, uh, famous monsters was our Bible and these were our gods, you know, our little gods, little shrines or whatever of the monsters. And so uh the the monster kid phenomenon is a, a strange one. Uh, in the sense, I mean, as far as the profound, I think we were a very frightened generation. Uh, not only these, uh, my father was a very kind and loving man, you know, he didn't, but there were a lot of uh, neighborhood monsters that uh, kids underwent their, you know, abuse from them and things like that. And uh, so it was frightening in, in the domestically 
And then it was also, of course, we were under threat of, of uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, we were convinced uh, we were going to be, uh, it was just going to happen sometime, you know, maybe not today, tomorrow, that we're going to be blasted and we're going to be separated from our parents. We, we will, our parents will die and we'll be alone or whatever. I mean, these were real uh, fears. And so the, the monster culture, again, had this effect of uh being horror horrors not not getting away from horror it is horror but it is it ritualizes and mythologizes the horror thus giving uh making it fun you know and 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 since exercising the demons that are true demons that are in the experience and so uh, every kid was kind of into it more or less, but there were some of us that were a whole lot more. And uh, you went, and every Saturday there was a new movie, you know, Roger Corman, all those movies from the early 60s. So every Saturday went, stood in line. That theater held 3,000 people. It was packed every Saturday. I mean, not an empty seat in the place. And, uh, you know, the screaming and the, you know, I mean, they were, these kids, it was all kids, you know, and, and they were reacting to these films just in extre extremely interacting with them, the screams, the, the, you know, it was bedlam in there sometimes. It was strange that way. And it was made that all the more scary. But uh, so, so that's, we, we had our, literature we had our films we had our pilgrimages we made to these theaters which again were like the kids today when they say oh they watch it on uh you know at home on the screen etc so we were undergoing we were doing the same kind of movie going rituals that our parents even grandparents had done so it was a very much of a continuum of culture you know right. And, and in many cases, the of course, the generation bridge that famous monsters and the shock package created when all of these films that really our parents would have seen when they first came out in the early 30s. Uh, and then we were seeing them uh, again and, and loving them again. And so that was a real bridge. Uh, but that I now see there are no cultural commonalities, but we talked about generation gap in my day. We kind of, that was when it was, that word was invented, but the gap was not nearly as great really uh, as it is now, you know, yeah. I mean, I hear, uh, say, oh, this guy's a celebrity or right? I see celebrity jeopardy. And I said, I don't know a damn one of these people. <laughs> never heard of any of them. Right. Yeah. You know? And uh, so we had that sort of everybody's uh, Johnny Carson or whatever, bring on Tiny Tim, and everybody saw it. And you watch the Ed Sullivan show, and there's the doors and the Rolling Stones and the animals and all that. Uh, and, and parents and children, there was a commonality there, you know. And that was part of the monster kid phenomenon also is that it was a uh, symbolic bringing together of 
of generations. Again, something that makes you feel more safe or more, more like not lost. And so that was part of it. the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s kind of thing. I cut off my observation of uh, films uh, at around 1975. Now, not that uh, after 75, the films and such are bad. Some of them are super excellent, but uh, but uh, they the, the makers are monster kids themselves. Right. They're Steven Spielberg and and, and George Lucas and you know, right. and, you know John Carpenter or whatever. Uh, they they're tapped in. They know what they're doing. Right. Whereas yeah. the older ones, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. There's an unconscious uh, upwelling of this symbolic material that is coming out on the screen. And they, have, of course, with the Hayes Code and all that sort of thing, they have to really tone it down. I was just watching uh, uh, the, the, the scenes from uh, King Kong right. that were cut out. And I mean, yeah. those were pretty gruesome scenes, you know, and pretty the sexual things with the King Kong sniffing of her. And, you know, I mean, you really, right. it's a sexual, that uh, overtly uh, sort, uh, sort of thing. So, uh, I mean, some restrictions, though, uh, that, uh, improve the art of something like horror films. I make it so that I would say an example, if you had a football game where the only rule was Get the ball over the line down there, the goal line. Can I knives, guns? Oh yeah, well whatever it takes. I mean, then you would have no. Uh, there'd be no Jim Brown. <laughs> there'd be no the great artists, uh, great athletes who who, who have to uh, practice their craft under restrictions. I mean, that's true of art, of athletics, of all these things. And so when the slasher sort of age came in and you can say, right. just get gory, get uh, special effects. And then it becomes kind of just kind of a, like a porn, a porno in yeah, the sense porn. that moves from one scene of war. Yeah. And that's definitely. That's all that and so it's about 75, like the, uh, the exorcist is the last uh, sort of the culmination of it all. And the beginning of something else, as was uh, uh, right. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. It's a, a brilliant, brilliant film, the original one, uh, in the sense that it was made, and it could have been, it just be an R rated thing today. It, there's nothing explicit there. I, it's just like old school as far as. Right. And they gave it an X originally. And then he just, <laughs> I, I, well, I made some changes there for you boys, and uh, and but he didn't. He just said he made changes, and they looked at it again. Right. And said, oh, it's okay. Okay, we were just. <laughs> I didn't realize that. That's funny. <laughs> nothing there. I mean, there's nothing. It's, but it's so strong, right? That it you're, is. you're seeing these things, and so that's the art, and that sort of I think has been lost, obviously. Uh, I I think that's a really good point and in, in, in where you draw that cutoff there in the mid seventies too. You, um, you know, especially with, with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So retroactively, a lot of people kind of think of it now as sort of a proto slasher, you know, uh -huh. um, but really it's not, 
really it's more of the last mo- true monster movie right. in a lot of ways. More yeah. so than a slasher movie in the formula of like Halloween or Friday the 13th, right? They come a few years later. Um, Absolutely. That, yeah, well, that, I, I don't know. It's an, that's interesting, that transit. I mean, it's transitional, right? Uh-huh. Like what you're saying during, in that mid-70s period, you know? And cultural, uh, you know, all triggered by the the, 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 the removal of the Hayes code. Right. You know, that's... I also think it's interesting that you, you and you draw that distinction, like because after that you start getting the creators that are now they're too self-aware, right, right. of what they're doing, right? It, it's something. It's not bad necessarily. It's just something no, different. No, you know, be great. Um, but that's the same thing in comic books at that time too. I think, yeah. right? Uh, you know, what, what we call like the Bronze Age of comics now is happening at the same time in the seventies with the same kind of phenomenon where you had for the first time the creators that were taken over from the Stanleys and the Jack Kirby's. Well, people like the Roy Thomases and the Neil Adamses and, and stuff that had been comic fans as kids, right? Instead of just right. industry professionals, you know, doing their doing their daily grind, you know, you had people that were fans now becoming the professionals, right? And it does change things, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, is, so, uh, I'm not I'm trying to say that you know, oh, it just all went. To, it's just terrible now. No, I mean I've seen some recent. Right. Ones that I thought these this is really great uh, artwork and so forth. So you're, they're, they're maximally free. They anything could be done. You could make one with the same restrictions uh, voluntarily imposed. I'm sure many are do. Yeah. Right. So, uh, but this, well, you had a similar thing with comics too, with the, the easing up of the comics code authority. Uh huh. Yeah. Happened at the same like, time, right? Uh-huh. You know, um, I don't know. That's interesting. There's parallels, but yeah. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to say real quick, one, some newer horror movies that are good, but they're hard to watch. And I know the guy, David Howard Thornton, he's on my uh, Facebook and uh, the terrifier movies one and two. It's like the character in that clown is really iconic. But the scenes are just so freaking gory; it's hard to watch. Like people throwing up in the theater and stuff. Uh, but uh, I've watched them once, and I would probably watch them again. But it's like I'm hesitant. Like, do I need to watch this? Like some of those scenes in there, man. But that Terrifier right. Clown one and two, it's they're sure. really they've become big. He's like uh, in Freddy well, territory. People, Freddy territory. People now. were really, really frightened. I say in the '30s. With Dracula and a film such such as that, uh, although they people probably saw more terrible things in their lives in those days than uh, we do, still right. the films were, would affect people uh, and frighten them uh, much more than you would expect, and that's the reason why they have some of that annoying comic relief. I mean, everybody loves Renfield. I had a great that little dog uh, that was my minion, and I named him Renfield. He was a giant <laughs> chihuahua. He was like 14 pounds. Remember? Nice. We just found him. And anyway, uh, he was my minion. And, uh, but, you know, Renfield, I love the Renfield character in the original Dracula, but he's there for comic relief. Uh, that's what the, the fly eater thing and all that, uh, or the mystery of the wax museum. It has a lot of this that would otherwise it would be really really right. good, but that that stuff it just kind of was unnecessary for us. 
But the reason they put it there was to try to alleviate the people would get so uh, frightened and so upset that they, that they will be harmed by these films. So we need comic relief as a form of uh, to alleviate their psyches. Well, uh, Dracula was definitely what I wanted to get into uh, next. I uh, and Vlad the Impaler and all that. Uh, I collect a lot of figures and stuff of Nosferatu and Vlad the Impaler. There's actually a really cool, uh, I think it's called like the Dracula Tarot by Travis McHenry or Vlad Dracula. But there's a tarot that came out not too long ago that's the, like the wood glyph. Uh, mm -hmm. pictures you know and the whole thing is like his story but uh love that stuff and definitely would li love to hear you talk about it as much as you want yeah, to. Yeah. <laughs> i don't know that you read that part of the book yes it's a it's a spoiler right i mean that blood the impaler had nothing to do with dracula the book right yeah he, yeah yeah the name was used but just, but, the, name. But just the name i mean they had a it was discovered the name Dracula and all that. It just was this sort of came to light when he finished the book and it was going to print and with the manuscript of it, we just called him Vampire, which was something like that uh, Polidori had done. Uh, and so he changed it to Dracula throughout. Uh, he changed the name of the character. Uh, and of course, made, I think that was really important to the success of but just because of the poetry of that name. Uh, but uh, that that is, we have some of the description that the character gives of himself. And so this is not Blood <laughs> the Impaler, right? It's something that he's like different. But uh, that's a separate thing is that Vlad the Impaler and the whole mythology. I actually did a, my, uh, you know, when you're in high school in my day, uh, probably in yours, uh, a senior in high school, you have to write a major research paper. You know, it's your final thing in English. And I wrote mine on uh, Dracula. And, and it was like this, as I called it, the, 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 the truth and the myth and the superstition of Dracula. And I found some books uh, at occult books and so forth the wb crows a witchcraft book and a book called the, the supernatural and others that had made this connection with Vlad the impaler and before the mcnally floreshku book had come out and uh, so i have that there but uh they really did a historian's professional job on the, the subject and so Vlad the impaler is an interesting man in his own right regardless and then he's become that this the, the later amalgamation of the two has created a new mythology right you know and it's kind of interesting the mythology I, I when I, my first inkling of this whole monster book project and the, bringing mythology together with interpretation really uh was sparked in my mind upon viewing uh, the uh, Dracula of uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Right. And I immediately recognized that hey, this is the mummy mythology. Right? This is what uh, the, the mummy films have, that there's uh, that you have this one 
character who is immortal through ego consciousness continues and then there's a beloved who is constantly reincarnating and he is seeking to reunite with this uh prince you see and actually uh it had been that this mythology had been first put together not by francis ford coppola but uh, by Richard Matheson in writing that Dracula with uh, Jack Palance. And that was originally called Bram Stoker's Dracula. Coppola bought that name and they had to change theirs. And he used the same mythology, but of course, the Jack Palance film was a made for TV movie. <laughs> and and right. Coppola pulled out all the stops production wise and uh you know made a great piece of artwork but the film the, the mythology is from the mummy films uh, i they, mean but that's becoming now as you said part of the modern myth of dracula yeah right vlad tepish even that reincarnation theme it appears it's not just in the coppola film you see that in like in castlevania right the, there was the nintendo game it's now an animated series you see it in um they did that the new um, the new Dracula a few years ago where they you know tied him back in with you know with Vlad Tepish again yeah. you know yeah it, it's now they become inseparable these concepts it's right? a mythology evolves right. we're seeing it yeah in the examples I mean this is not different from the way ancient Greek or Germanic mythology evolved we think it was oh that's set in stone no right. things change it it has to do with does it feel right? Does it feel powerful? Right? right? Does it work? Yeah. You know, so, then yeah. It, it happens. But uh, or it doesn't. It doesn't probably become part of the story. Stephen, right. Stephen, I think you would like. I don't know if you've seen it, but that last voyage of the Demeter, it's pretty good. It's actually good. That Dracula movie that just came out, where he's on the boat, and it's like uh -huh. an Osferatu type situation. But that's a good one that just came out. That's actually good. Sure. The last voyage of the Demeter. It all takes place on the ship. Oh. He's eating them all. So, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, did, so you did like that, huh? I, I haven't seen it yet, but I really wanted to see I it. I liked it. I mean, you, you know, it was good compared to most of the crap that comes out. It was pretty good. <laughs> like, it was right. old-fashioned dude. Uh, I mean, I love it's the on boat getting, you know, fighting Dracula. <laughs> right. So, so you got and Dracula was just like, pure. It, it Dracula was like a big, movie, yeah. It's yeah. about the voyage. Right, uh, which you know, in the in the novel, yeah. you know, like you talk about in the book, you know, the novel's told in epistolary style, right? It's just you know, sure. journals and things like that, right? And so you never get to actually see what happens on the ship, on you know, Dracula's voyage to, to right. London. It just shows up, everybody, the ship's empty, everybody's dead, whatever. Um, so that yeah, it's basically telling the story of the voyage, right? As a self-contained mm -hmm. horror story. Um, right, so I think, just like the the book, uh, most people's. You know, favorite part of the book is the the very first part, right? Yeah. Parker's encounter with Dracula in the castle and all those things. Uh, you know, it has a horrifying scene that I think that somebody's done it, but uh, it couldn't be done for a long time where the brides are feeding on that baby. Right. That was that, in the Coppola version. Yeah, right? that's the Coppola. Yeah, it was in there, right? Uh, 
which I'm a big fan of, by the way. I know a lot of Dracula fans are not. I've heard a lot of people complain about the Coppola movie, but I love it. Well, it's, um, it's great. I mean, like I said, that because yeah. he, you know, I, I just recognized. I just so happened that I wrecked in that when I saw it. I said, "This is." So cross fertilizing the uh, horror mythologies, right? It really comes from uh, you know something deeper and more esoteric. Uh, and I don't know uh, how it happened, but somebody who uh, worked on those uh, films, uh, maybe John Balderston or somebody, was learned a bit in in things like a. Uh, Right. Uh, platonic, neoplatonic philosophy or something and, and then came up with it. But the, the names, I mean, the original names in the in the 1931 film is uh, our uh, 32 film is uh, are not the same, but the the, the, the 40s series uh, with the use of Caris and Ananke. And right. these words mean are Greek words, not Egyptian words. And one means gift or grace, karis, and ananke means need or uh, you know, distress. I mean, they're abstract terms. Right. So, where do, you, where, do you have any idea where you think that was coming from? What where the influence was? I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of Eastern and esoteric thought that was becoming popular in the twenties and thirties leading into that period in the West, you know, for the first time. Um, where do you think they were getting that from? Well, that's movie I'm, makers? well I'm just somebody like uh, John Balderston must've been somewhat yeah. in this, you know, just to just be a, in Greek and something. Uh, Ananka has another connection with horror world or what people think of as a horror thing today uh the hunchback of notre dame that uh victor hugo said that he was inspired to write the book by seeing this greek word inscribed in the wall it just in a corner huh. where in notre dame it's which since disappeared just ananke you know interesting need, need sorrow it's uh, right you know huh. and it's what caused someone to describe this word such an interesting word too, right? In Greek, um, my Greek's super rusty, but it—it's need. It's—it's it's the sorrow that comes with need, right? Mm -hmm. It's um, almost like a modern translation might be Jonesen. Yeah, know? right, right, right. Uh, right, the like need that comes like almost from addiction, you know, right. uh, that kind of thing. Um, yes, right. Uh, and then that's where the, you know, the, these ideas of, of, of consciousness static and continuous and cyclical and and, and discontinuous right, right. And, and these two types and then the, the romance between them uh, the mummy uh, in the uh, uh, boris karloff version they really i mean is a romance you know right this undying love that uh, imhotep has right it's that well it's that need and that desire for something you can't have, right? Or shouldn't be able to have, right? Because yeah. it's, it's the same with Quasimodo, right? Same kind of idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much more into these in these films, I think, that people give them credit. And I love that that's what you're unpacking in this book. Um, yeah. And, and then the words, words. Though, it's not always conscious, right? Right. I, have, uh, I think that we had 
of people who were sometimes very well educated and then they they came across a lot of things in their lives uh, and then they wrote them and they just poured out and the, their point was just get a film a script that works that that will work you know work and uh, that's their main thing uh, but as a, as a job but it this kind of thing comes out unconsciously that's why i call it like a rorschach test also the fact that uh, so many people are involved in the making of a film it's more of a collaborative collective expression than it is there's a lot of different things that go into it and who knows where some idea comes from gets incorporated and and, and just the way films are made uh make it so that uh, it's more of a uh, opportunity for unconscious material to come to the surface and find it seems to me like maybe you you're you're, the first chapter you explored you know dracula and the vampire theme the second the mummy says that's kind of a great segue into this anyway that the the tie between the two with Mm -hmm. the vocals version and the reincarnation thing um it seems like with the mummy and with the, the Egyptomania thing that was going on at that time, you saw a maybe a more overt interest in esoteric and hermetic ideas. Sure. With the interest in the newfound you know Egyptomania that was coming out with you know the discovery of Tut's tomb and twenty two and, and these kinds of things, right? Because you know, even in, in things like the Rosicrucians during that period, right? You get all of the Egyptian trappings being added on, and you start you start seeing, you know, Egyptian ideas and aesthetics and, um, or at least what Westerners perceive as Egyptian ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, becoming, um, it was very much a part of that, I, you know, I think, um, you know, that idea of Egypt, as, ancient Egypt as this repository of, of lost wisdom and ancient knowledge and these kinds of things, right? So maybe it's there. not a surprise that you see that in the Monday movies more than the others. Others, I mean, this sort of fascination with Egypt as Egypt being the place where anytime uh, Greeks would come up with some innovative ideas, oh, I got it from Egypt. Right. right. A lot of times that's something that's been generated. The mo- more likely these ideas came from Persia than from Egypt, right. but it was very uh, prestigious say they got it from Egypt and since nobody could really track it trace it down very easily it was innovative creative people it's like the golden dawn oh we got it in Germany you know you know right to put it off into a or Tibet it's a secret you know masters from Tibet that's it right (laughs) but it's it's a cover a a prestigious uh, cover for innovative thought yeah and that for a long time and of course then when true ability to even read hieroglyphics disappeared around you know the 400s then it was like oh look at all these writings we could make up anything and as far as what they mean nobody could read any of it Oh, it's funny you mentioned that. I was literally just in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was at the uh, Temple of Philae, and where the last hieroglyphic inscription Mm -hmm. is carved on the wall there. Um, And 
there's something so profound about that. You know, it was um, it was just an inscription by one of the last priests there. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, Philae is of course you know far in the south in Upper Egypt. You know, the country was pretty much Christian by that point for the most part. This was one the you know, Temple of Isis that was still holding out. Yeah. You know, down there deep in the country with one last family of priests still using the sacred writing, you know, and the last ones that you know probably have that knowledge um, and uh, carving one last thing on the wall mm -hmm. before it disappeared for centuries, you know. I don't know. Something kind of incredibly powerful about that. Um, yeah. Hey guys, hey guys, just real quick, and I don't want to get into this uh, like heavily, but they just said that they tested a, a weapon of mass destruction in Nevada, and even the Russians are like making statements about it that they just set off like some kind of nuclear crazy thing. Wait, what? <laughs> They're just saying that our government just set off a nuclear blast in Nevada that was so big that the Russians responded like put out a release or something about it saying, you know, some crazy military crap. I don't know. It's on the, it's like, you know, oh, the wow. circuit. hopefully it was intentional. Yeah. 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 So, <laughs> we evaporate during the show or mutants come out. I just wanted to say, oh, why. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is, this is waking up our old anxieties from We're the cold war. We used to hide in the monster movies from, right? I mean, man. Good Lord. <laughs> it is crazy and that's what you know i mean how many monster movies has radiation spawn oh, yeah. one of the movies that scared the crap out of me as a kid and it's so cheesy and you know gross is that toxic avenger where they crush that little kid's head with the car or whatever like that haunted me forever sometime i need to rewatch it to see what happens to me like i'll probably shake or something but they I'm ran over his head or something i want to see the new toxic avenger but those i'm not really that big into those i don't i mean they're okay but they are definitely gross like on a lot of levels Tra trauma films but uh but that's the 80s, man. You make a great point, though. How much, you know, you know, that's that's past where Stephen was working, right? But how many radiation, you know, fueled monsters were there in the 80s, right? Right as we're getting to the peak of the Cold War, right, with Reagan bringing it back. You know, those well, are those anxieties that are expressed all the, in all, all the big, big bug movies. I mean, they were right. all uh, radiation, radiation, and, and Godzilla. Of course, the Japanese anxiety about it <laughs> for obvious right. reasons. With, you know, yeah. uh, and it's uh, so, uh, yeah, radiation was a big character in a lot of those. these these films. It's how we play out our anxieties in a in a controlled way, like you said, right? Because you can always close the book or walk out of the theater or turn off the TV, right? Um, mm -hmm. And you, you knew know, it was, you know, make believe. You knew it was right. original. You knew it was. Uh, an enactment it was not really happening yeah yeah except rosemary of course and rosemary's baby she had to discover this is really happening right right that line where she's this is not a dream it's really happening right. <laughs> yeah well uh Stephen, what what chapter do you want to talk about that you feel passionate to discuss with us what's oh. one of the ones that you love I know they're all great you love them all I don't yeah. care, but is I there think a particular? the the Phantom of the Opera was one where I made a lot of interesting uh, discoveries yeah uh you know Gaston Laveau, he uh claimed that this is uh, report on something that really happened I and mean, these people are real this happened right. this is not made up 
And I thought, well, of course, that's a typical romantic sort of uh, narrative strategy, you know, to say, oh, this was discovered in this book or what, to, to, to lend this aura of, uh, of historical believability to it. But then I started to look into some things, some curious things uh, about the story and about some of the things that happened there. And this character, Eric, was, of course, not as opposed to the later films that always had him an example of uh, misunderstood or, or a genius robbed of his work and acid and thrown in his face and all that kind of stuff. Which was not part of the of the story at all. He was just extraordinarily deformed, ugly man. You know, he was, he was displayed in carnivals as a the living dead man or skull or whatever. And so you think, well, what? And then he went uh, to Persia in the story, and that's what that. There's this kind of a, a detective called the Persian in the book, and he's also in the. 1925 film. He's like wearing a fez or something. And uh, he's always looking around and keeping an eye on things. And uh, what happened in the book, this uh, Eric character went to Persia. He designed dungeons and uh, uh, things like that for the Shah uh, of Iran at the time. And if we look back at history and say, well, there was a, an interesting Shah who did have a dungeon built that was very elaborate now this was a uh, shah uh, nasir al-din uh, shah uh, kajar was his name and uh, he ruled for a long time and he built this uh, golestan palace which is this huge palace still there and uh, had a dungeon beside it which was elaborate and that's where the founder of the Baha'i faith, the founder, they were imprisoned and tortured there. And others, you know, it was just a bad scene. And uh, that prison uh, was then subsequently destroyed after it was just so notorious. It was destroyed in back then. And uh, oddly enough, you know what they built on that site? An opera house. No kidding. Yeah. And if you look at this Golestan Palace, it was, of course, you know, in Iran, uh, it's very uh, arid in the parts uh, of it and uh, hot, soft. And then they had like uh, air conditioning and they put like a cistern of water underneath this palace. So you can actually go around in boats. It's like a museum now. They don't use it that way. But it had water underneath. And that's exactly the way the Paris Opera House is. It has a drain where water has drained into the bottom intentionally. And it's, that's what that whole thing about there's a lake down there and the Phantom is going around in a boat down under there. But here, this building and that building, which he was supposedly in the book, instrumental in designing, that's why he could create these secret passages and so forth. That all matches up. That's cool. Yeah. There was, there was this thing. There was really cool. uh, these historical connections. It's just uh, too much is 
but then it's like, where does that come from? I mean, Gaston Leroux says, this really happened. You know, but he's not doing that. this research. He doesn't have this. But this yeah. version in the, in the book and in the silent film is it, it, like a, he well, he escaped from this Shah and went back to the West, but under bad circumstances, right? He wants to really uh, arrest him, maybe. He's not sure the Shah, you know, he's like, and that's what he, that's like a, a secret agent that's following him and right. helping him. It's kind of an ambiguous uh, uh, relationship, you know, between this Eric and the Shah. None of that is overtly played out, but Clive's just uh, Iranian, you know, this Persian uh, policeman, you know, there observing everything. It's uh, it's not, not really to move the narrative or change it. It's just like, again, speaks to the author's belief that this is real. This really happened. So that, that was good i think uh, interesting uh, and as a method as an example of the kind of method that i use where uh, i look for a historical connection or a philosophical right. one or whatever not each one each chapter is like well i gotta apply the same method to every one it's like what uh, they just automatically suggested themselves like right. werewolf i know this from my studies uh, you know germanic studies uh, uh, in Germanic mythology and so forth, that a werewolf is not a curse, it's a superpower, right? That the men in, in the men's societies was part of the adolescent initiation process that they went through a werewolf stage and they then transformation into animals, figuratively, probably not actually, oh. you know, part of this warrior society. You know, and so the transformation into a wolf uh, uh, or bear, etc. That's what the like the berserker, you know. Right. That was. So, I thought that was really interesting reading that part. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that more? That's. I thought that was very cool. Yeah. Well, that's what uh, what we've lost for the most part. We've lost the the the, the, the initiatory uh, superpower aspect of werewolfery. And uh, also the sexual component that there was uh, uh, that day we in, in popular mythology, for example, the wolf whistle or he is a wolf. This is all we don't use these right. terms anymore. But uh, you know, back 50 years ago, that's what they it was, there was a wolf and sex, uh, and that goes back to and connects with Grimm and the little the Red Riding Hood. That this is a story about uh, sex, sexuality of a girl getting her first period. Uh, she is pursuing, she's starting to become a woman. She's a, a, a male aggressor, is after her, kind of, you know, and man of day and consumes her. And then a better man comes along and splits the wolf open. There's a lot of blood. And she and the grandmother emerge from the wolf, and she's a woman now. Right. You know, so these are mostly stories. That's why the girls are the protagonists in so many of these fairy tales. 
because the, they were often instructional tales to girls, you know, about being hardworking or, you know, warning them about this or that. And, but they're very, uh, but, but uh, this is, goes deeper. If you look in Germanic mythology, the, the, the uh, Ragnarok at the end of, as described at the end of time when uh, right. the, the god Odin is swallowed by a wolf. By Finrir, right. Right, and he is, his son, Vidar, uh, avenges him immediately. How? By ripping the wolf open. Right. Now, to me, uh, I interpret, no, uh, you know, that the, actually this is telling you, bringing Little Red Riding Hood into it, why does why does he have to rip the wolf? Right. Well, he's yeah. he's releasing a transformed Odin back into the world. Cool. You know? So, uh, but that's what's uh, what's you know going on there. So, uh, a lot of these old myths they only tell a part, little portion of the story to us. I mean, so much of it is just understood to the contemporary world that. To which it belonged. Let me ask you this: This is this is the anthropologist to me, like wanting to unpack that a little bit because it's absolutely fascinating, right? This idea of, of the tearing of the wolf, right? And seeing this as in both cases, both stories we're talking about here, they are in a sense initiatory, as you mm -hmm. said, right? But transformative. It's transformative, right? It's transformative in a way, though. Is this? Do you think? It's the idea is you got to be consumed by the, the by the animal in us, right? You've got to become the animal, but then you have to then find a way to transcend that to become a true man or woman. As, as a case is. is that what they're getting at? We have to have a a hero or a, a benefactor to to liberate us. Right. Like in the case of Owen, we get that really a lot of details about. Uh, things that like kind of lead up to it's like uh, see what I'm uh, leading up see what all this stuff you know it's, well he ripped him up or not is that just in the book or just in the poem and not a big deal no there's yeah a it's too specific it. to not matter and you say these are the the, the uh, there's leather that a shoemaker will throw away or burn and said so what is that for so well that is leather that is going to be on the heel of Vidar. Uh, we, that's all going to be collected. He has to have a big, thick one in order to do this uh, task. Of he's going to put the heel down on the lower jaw and rip up. So it's more than just a story. There's right. more, and, and, and it's deeper and it's more pervasive than that. And so, uh, you know, but you have to have this. And he is engendered. Vidar is engendered by Odin specifically for this one thing, to avenge me. And of course, that was a big part of uh, uh, going back to that Robert E. Howard, this idea of reincarnation, that, yes. that you have to, that liberates your soul to be, come back into the clan. Uh, but he the father, the first duty of a son, if his father is killed, it's the Hamlet story. Right. It's is to avenge his father's death. It's it's not just um, oh, it's just a thing to do, you know, like we're a bunch of gangsters or something. No, it's like we've got to get his luck back, his soul back into our clan because a murder or a killing by another group steals it, captures it, takes it away from us. We got to get it back, and this is how you do it. And that story is one of the oldest, right? It's Osiris set in Horus. Uh huh. You know, 
that that Hamlet story, right? Yeah. The, the, the murder of the father and the son that has to avenge them, right? And then bring him back. You know, uh, Hamlet, there forever. You know, of course, I wa I watched that Greece that that uh, you know film of the of the uh, the Northman, and it was okay. Mm -hmm. But I I think they I think he strayed too much from the Hamlet uh, right. story in the in the sense he didn't have to. Now, it is a Norse saga, right? Originally, yeah. you know, right. and it was only occurred in a Latin version. But uh, the dilemma there, the power of that story, is that it's okay. Your father's been killed; you must avenge him. But my mother is now married to him, so he is also legally like my stepfather. Right. And that's that moral dilemma: to be or not to be. That's what he's caught in this horns of that dilemma morally or ethically is like uh, he's a family member it's not like i'm the guy from another tribe that i need to avenge my father so it's like still in the family but what so i get it's a real uh barbarian <laughs> moral yeah. you know yeah that guy's doing nosferatu next which i hope it's good that's a that's a hard yeah. one but I've um, heard he's been going at that for a long time. Yeah, well, I, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, and uh, one of the big things about monsters is when the monster, you know, he may do a few bad things, but usually the the asshats that want to kill the monster are worse than the monster. I know that's in Frankenstein, but is there other some other ones with that kind of motive? What are some things with that kind of situation where the the humans are really the monsters? Like, and they're always trying to kill the monster, but compared to that monster, they're probably worse than the monster. <laughs> like, Frankenstein's a good example for sure of that one, right? I, I there's always amb uh, you know, ambiguity about the monster's like, char character or, or whatever that he was, uh, either he became this thing through no fault of his own. That's what they turned like the werewolf story, you know, into. Uh, and that's very interesting. Uh, that uh, Kurt Seeldmack, you know the Seeldmack brothers. Uh, you know the the the, the release date. He saw this in his own life as a illustrate of Nazism. You know of the beast and man, right? Right. These you know it's best as kind of a weird uh, synchronicity. That the release date of the Wolfman and the and the day that Hitler signed the uh, papers to initiate the extermination of the Jews huh. was signed on that same day. Wow! You know. Uh, so, uh, but uh, Sid Mac did see this as a uh, illustration uh, of this bestial nature that is unleashed. But see, it's ambiguous in the sense that he is a German, uh, a Jewish German, but still a German. You know, sees that this whole Nazi thing is an aberration. It's a sickness. It's a curse. You know, it's not right. like just saying, "Oh, the." Larry Talbot is an evil man, but he's afflicted with an evil curse. Doesn't mean that he's he's not dangerous and won't kill you if he gets the chance. But when he's in that mode, 
but that's just a synchronicity that thing with the, the, the yeah it's a horrible synchronicity was what i was thinking when you told me that uh, that's, that's it perfectly illustrate what he was thinking that uh, yep you know this is what i'm talking about yeah we wouldn't even have known that until later no. happened that wasn't like the news and the news tonight hitler is just like you know that wasn't the way right. it but uh so that's uh, uh all of them I, most of them, all of them are sympathetic uh, uh the phantom uh, so forth i mean everybody say well he's just so he, he's cur cursed by his deformity. He, he is a genius. He's, but he uh, can't find love, you know, because of his right. uh, uh, deformity. Uh, Even in Hotep, right? It's the same kind of idea, right? I mean, he's motivated by something we can all appreciate, right? Love, right? And they're not, almost none of the monsters are truly of our classic world. You know, are right. truly just e evil. I mean, I guess Dracula could be, in the sense that if we look at the uh, book, right, it's not like right. oh, Dracula was bitten. You know, no, he was just so deeply into satanic, right, and so forth at the Sholomans that he became he became this thing almost you know by willfully so. Right. So. Uh, um. Just to get back to the werewolves for a minute, because that's interesting. We kind of jumped from their, that's their sort of primal folklore, mythological, initiatory aspect, right, to the more the more modern version. There, with we're looking at this as a sickness, and, and with the idea that you know it's something that we can, can be cured. What's always fascinated me, and you touched on this a little bit, is the more the medieval concept of the werewolf, right, with like Peter Stuby and, and some of those kind of ideas and, you know, the, the beast, you know, in France and these kinds of things. Uh -huh. um, you know, how did that, how did we get there? How did we get there from this idea of, of this being uh -huh. sort of a, um, the, the transformation, like, and then transcending the beast and, and man as this initiatory ritual. Um, how did we, how did we get there to the well, modern I, concept of the werewolf? I think that, that I got a misbehaving dog. Uh, it's okay. The uh, the uh, the truth or the original idea is just so difficult for modern people to relate to. Mm -hmm. You have to get into this whole you know, initiatory thing. The, you know, get a superpower. What am I going to use this for? I mean, nowadays people, I think, that they're like, a, what is this? A, the Avengers or the X Men and things like that. It's a, they were right. more attuned to that kind of thing. But I think that for a long time, with Christian, because it's a part of a pagan religion, werewolves. Right. So uh, it was hard to relate to as a curse, you know. Like well, I do bad things because you know it's a, it's a curse, it's a disease, it's this that yeah you know, that all is a very intelligible to, to people, but the other is you have to delve into or understand a culture which is rather uh, uh, foreign or alien to people in, in a Christian world. Again, it's starting. People are starting to wake up to these things if it's not that you know i mean it is a, a positive or a good thing but we'll see a war we have these things now you know we're confronted with 
terrible situation. And uh, the uh, war is, uh, as Sherman says, hell. And these uh, people who fight in war are, are, are turn into demons, bloodthirsty demons. Now, our ancient ancestors realized that, and they believe, uh, whether Celtic, Germanic, whatever, that all killing is bad, you know, uh, not because there's a tablet that says thou shalt not kill, but just because it's polluting. And, and in those, and in that kind of fighting, it really is. I mean, usually guys come out if they if they survive, you know, drenched in blood and brain splat all over them, and so forth. And uh, so they need to, after battle, you know, be reintegrated through ritual into normal human family life. But there are rituals for that. The uh, the god uh, hero Cahulun, uh, Celtic, or you know, mm -hmm. he got uh, uh, he would get this heat. You know, he'd become like battle frenzy, and then when he would come back after this fight, they they would dunk him into vats of water. You know, one and then he got heated that one up and boiling, and put him in another one, and three of them, uh, and he will be cooled down. But the whole thing, this idea is. Just like these guys coming, these monsters I'm talking about coming back from World War II or from Vietnam. He's up to something. Huh? <laughs> I'm saying he's up to something, the dog behind you. Oh, making <laughs> sure it's nothing important. But one thing I was going to say just real quick about werewolves, the creepiest thing about them is there's a lot of paranormal stuff about people seeing these things that's kind of – I mean, I don't know if they're actually seeing what, you know, what it is, but there's some lucrative stuff like Linda Godfrey. Like there was some town, I don't, I forget where it is, where people, the sheriff got so many calls about them seeing like a, a wolf humanoid that he started to keep the, all the stories. And then there was just a documentary from small town monsters called the Dogman triangle that's in Texas and it's mm -hmm. on Tubi. But uh, supposedly there's an area that where people have seen the same uh, humanoids, you know, werewolf, basically yeah. dog man in a Texas area in three different encounters. And they have the witnesses and it's like, just these down there are farmers that said they saw like 12 of them and they seem, you know, I mean, you don't know unless you're there, but they seem dead serious and freaked out that they saw these things. So there's something to it. I mean, well, there's, a, there's something there, to it. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of guys, you know, nowadays, uh, I know some of them, you know, who are into the werewolf, cult you know what i mean wolves of the wolves of vinland for example is a group and they're uh, you know taking this stuff pretty seriously but uh, that's interesting like the dracula know. or the vampire cults have been around for a while i didn't yeah. realize it was werewolves yeah, yeah. nowadays and that, but they're you know into the kind of things like a kind of like men's groups right where they you know Ooh, you know, Denny Sargent, Denny Sargent, werewolf <laughs> magic. They all get out I, in the woods and howl and stuff. I've had yeah. them on the show. <laughs> like, so, uh, I know, uh, well, it's, it's a, isn't like, that kind of a return to what you were talking about, yeah. though? Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I am, you know, part of that. So, I'm not part of the werewolf thing, per se. Right. But like I said in the book, I said I was a werewolf for a while, but I'm better now. And uh, the uh, more <laughs> the sexual kind of thing, but the right. uh, 
you know, and that's a werewolf of Paris is like the really right the the story or he really gets into it that it you know makes it so the, the sexual component is there, the blood, the lust is there and all of that sort of thing. And I was just watching rewatching I uh I was a teenage werewolf. I said that's mm -hmm. one of the only examples there's a scene in there. It's one of the only examples that I know of in you know older films. Right. Where there's a connection between sexual feelings and turning into the werewolf. Now the cat people, that's what that's all about. Right. right? But as far as werewolves, he werewolves, he's a, you know, sees this girl you know, like on a gym apparatus, you know, kind of half undressed and so forth, and looks at her and you know turns into the werewolf. Right. You know, kind of says obviously he's having sexual feelings and it triggered him. Right. Typical I mean, real old stories, you know, that there's a sexual component to it. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? It's that, that bringing out that primal, the, you know, the animal instinct, right? The primal right. You know, man that's in there. And I think you get it, you start to get it in some of the later movies by the 80s with the howling movies. You mm -hmm. know, you get, yeah. they you know, bring back the sexuality you know, uh, aspect to it. Yeah. Was it howling too with that one great scene with, uh, what's her name? Did I say that out loud? <laughs> I don't, I, I've seen them. I saw the first one not too long ago. It's been a while though. I think there's like I haven't an seen that since I was a kid. But yeah, I, I, yeah, that, that may have uh, initiated a transformative uh, ritual for me in my adolescence as well. Watching that movie, I think. <laughs> Wolfen, <laughs> exactly. Wolfen, yeah. great yeah. movie. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, they were. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That there's uh, the the. the making it come more conscious all these things made for some good films and good ideas right. and so forth but you know these are guys who studied a little and researched and it's like yeah. i when i was uh, star wars i remember when it first came out i was just okay this is a new movie it looks and it might be interesting but right. it was that uh, uh, press conference that lucas and spielberg had and they were like holding Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces yeah. in their hand. Right. You know? <laughs> and, and they were self-consciously yes. following, you know, uh -huh. the, you know the, the, the path of a hero with their film, right? Which makes it a little different than the stories that do that naturally, I think. Yeah. yeah. I you mean, know? it's bad, but it's, it's just different. You know, you it's can't different. go, I'm going to... Uh, like my gothic meditations at midnight for attempts to, uh, to 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 draw out some hidden interpretation, but in this case, you just go, you just got to research into what uh, what we in you know literary studies call positivism. That is right. that is the person's reading and where he studied and what he believed, the author, and you discover then what made him tick. And that's how you interpret the thing, as opposed mm -hmm. to we don't know. He's like uh, often, you know, inspired by things. And I've known a lot of people. I knew a uh, filmmaker who's died a few years ago, named William Whitliffe, and uh, he made like a uh, well, he did the film version of the, the Lonesome Dove. So he's a lot of westerns. But it, when I was working, I was packing books for him. You know, nineteen seventy eight, seventy nine. Uh, and uh, he was a publisher, 
but he got into filmmaking. And he made a couple of films at that time uh, that were one is called Raggedy Man and another one, Barbara yeah. Pizza with Willie Nelson. Right. He uh, knew I was into mythology, so he gave me the scripts of these book of these uh, of these films and said, you know, do a mythic analysis because he this guy he read like Seth material or all kinds right. of, you know new age kind of things mm -hmm. and constantly consulted psychics his whole life and he was into things like that but not studying about mythology this all just came up from who knows where and uh, so i analyzed them and these things were just full of mythological content that he knew nothing of he didn't consciously put any of it in there just like uh raggedy man he's like his father his been lost. He doesn't know this. The kids see this raggedy man. He's kind of like a guy who has a lawnmower that goes around the neighborhood. He's all messed up. He's got one eye and so forth and so on. And this guy comes at the, at the hour of their need when the mother and the kids are being attacked by hoodlums or, you know, thugs. You know, he comes and saves them. You know, but it turns out to be his own father. Uh, the kid's father who had been off in, a, in the war and was disfigured, you know, in the war, but he had one eye, the Odin thing, the, right. the father, the lost father, this, that, and the other. And so it was all there, but he was just, it was really just a kid's fantasy. He, he did, his father did run away, not in the war. And, I, and he and his brother would always fantasize. I bet daddy's around here somewhere looking right. over. You know, that was just a little kid's thing. And he made it into a film, and but had all this mythic material in there. Barbarossa, similar kind of stuff. But these are examples where a person, an artist, uh, is inspired by something beyond their uh, research. Right. From somewhere else. And that's why I see with the Robert E. Howard thing, too, that he's coming yeah. up with things that were beyond his research you know it was more right for those who don't know robert e howard is the uh, creator of conan the barbarian is what most people know him for call right. Simon Kane. but for those for listeners that may not know who that is and he wrote he was friends with lovecraft and the right. uh correspondent and uh wrote lovecraft cthulhu mythos stories also. right but uh yeah. You know, and this he, is heavily influenced by the films that you're talking about here today, right? Lovecraft, Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, all of these pulp writers, they were writing in the 1920s and 30s, right? In the same time, a lot of these universal films are about to come out, and they were all playing with the same ideas at that time, and they were influenced by them. They were seeing the films. So I think it's relevant to talk about that. You have a chapter on Lovecraft. Yeah. yeah. You know, in this book. Yeah, well, he's... Uh... You know, a lot of movies were made. Uh, his name wasn't box office magic as much as uh, Poe was, where they would, you know, even they'd take a Lovecraft story, Charles Dexter Ward, and say, Edgar Allan, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. And it's really right. a Lovecraft story. Right. <laughs> with, uh, you know, with a one line or half line from a Poe poem where they could say it's Poe. <laughs> right. <laughs> was magic of box office magic yeah haunted palace was pretty scary to me as a kid uh, lovecraft's films uh, die monster die 
haunted palace. I remember them being having, even I didn't know who Lovecraft was when I saw them. So as a kid in the theater there, like I was describing earlier, but there was something extra creepy about them that, that the, the mythos comes through uh, despite any <laughs> effort to make it just something normal. Like, what is that haunted palace? I mean, that is. You don't really guess that he's trying to breed this monster with these women, right? Right. To, to, and then so forth. Or like in Murders in the Rue Morgue, which has look to do with the Lovecraft, I mean, with the Poe story, but right. has to do with that mixing ape and human blood right. or genetics. With, or which is I, a theme that both Howard and Lovecraft both played with, right? Uh, this sort of evolutionary anxiety. Right. That yeah. you had it during that time, right? Yeah, I have a quite a bit, you know, that with the Ed Wood, uh, his Bride and the Beast. That's one of the most, uh, right. you know, great examples of that, where uh, you know the woman is like a somehow a reincarnation of an ape, and this whole it's like really that's uh, of course Ed Wood is. A much misunderstood, uh, yeah. like people, I make a big deal out of it. You know, that uh, Michael Medved saying, uh, Plan Nine from Outer Space is the worst film of all time. There's no, it is not the worst film of all time. There are thousands of ones that are worse, that have no message, no meaning. Right. You know, you may have built a million dollar special effects, but you don't have an idea, you don't have a right. story. You know, it's and he does so. Uh, yes, yeah, so he just didn't have the budget to. Yeah, you know, it is carried out. I think that Plan Nine from Outer Space should be remade the way he yeah. could would would have done it if he could have. You know, mm -hmm. so I mean that whole thing is like that. There's a uh, another theme I've developed in the book to some extent. It's just this whole thing we've touched on it already several times. This idea of the outsider, right monster and the monster kid are both they are outsiders they just want to uh, colin wilson's book the outsiders, the yeah. outsiders uh, uh, studies this as a phenomenon but you know out, outsiders want to cease to be outsiders but they want that they, they, but they have a process to to, to, to develop uh, in order to become something and monsters are like that. Of course, Lovecraft's story, The Outsider, right. has this where the guy is a resurrected corpse. He's coming and he just right. flying as he looks in the mirror and sees this awful monster. Right. You know? I mean, that's that that kind of ties in with a lot of Jeffrey, a lot of what you were saying earlier, right? I mean, that kind of hits it on the nose, you know, this idea of, of the um the viewer, the reader, whatever, also relating with the monster, the other here. Um, we haven't talked much about Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. but I feel like Frankenstein yeah. this is a segue for that, right? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, incredibly important uh, uh, book, film. Uh, most people, it's never been made as a film directly from the book with the same message. It's like a, a, a story that is really current in the sense that it's an, the, the irresponsible use of science. Right. And it's, it's a romantic 
critique of modern life or modern science that we're going to create right. something that's going to destroy us because we do not have the wisdom to to manage these creations whatever they are whether it's a whatever technology you can imagine i mean in 1818 you're thinking what you know that nothing has happened they got nothing but that in their world it was like things were happening fast in they their were way of thinking or their interpretation or feeling about it and so it's the irresponsible that uh scientists to create something you can't control and the fact that the creation becomes more civilized than the creator is just really profound um let me ask you a loaded question along those lines, and I know where you go about this in your book, but I love, I, I got to ask you. So, is Frankenstein horror or science fiction? Is it horror or science fiction? Well, I would say it's okay. primarily science fiction. Yeah. You know, I mean, as far as the the real, uh, uh, you know, message of it, the idea that it is a critique of science. Right and and a scientific creation that the that in this case it's a entity uh, that is uh, uh, horrific, but again the individual the the monster becomes a very uh, good human. I mean, as far as uh, he may not be human fully or whatever, but he is uh, driven by good things he wants to learn to, to read and and all that sort of thing all these far kind of odd far-fetched <laughs> ways in which the monster learns how to read and all of that sort of thing but it's just pure romanticism but that's what it, it is a romantic with a big r romantic peak of uh the enlightenment and the idea of science is going to save us and that sort of thing but it's so it's about science in every way it has a horrific component to it because of the nature of the psyche but if, if she'd written a, something about a, a contraption mechanical contraption rather than something that's made from corpses then it you know would be pure i mean it wouldn't be much that much of a question but right is but that's real typical of the uh, romantic also they they uh, look at science or into as a biological science fascinates them more than mechanical physics which was more of the 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 bailiwick of the enlightenment and the classicist kind of thinking you know a lot of people don't realize she also wrote one of the first apocalyptic novels yeah the last man uh, the last man you know uh, a lot of people forget that because uh quite frankly it's not, not nearly as good as frankenstein but uh, you know, um, people, I mean, just, yeah, I think we underestimate just how innovative Mary Shelley was um, and how ahead of her time. Yeah, it's really, you know, tremendous uh, idea and, and, and so forth. Uh, I, I know that there's some controversy over her, uh, you know, that, that Shelley, the Percy Shelley, you know, uh, edited the book quite heavily, apparently. Yes. Uh, to some extent, you know, the, 
there's there's computer program <laughs> uh you know that they can analyze writing right. and yes. identify well this guy this is you know john clancy or whatever wrote this you know yep. like that and it's, so they they put it through the that and said you know it doesn't look like her other writing Interesting. I didn't realize it, the stylometrics is the, the, the term used for that. I didn't realize they had done that with, yeah. with Frankenstein. There's with a, Frankenstein or with The Last Man? With Frankenstein. Frank, really? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I but what I think is it's clear that uh, that it's her work. You know, people don't realize, uh, literary you know, students uh, realize it or learn about it. That a lot of the great authors, whether it's uh, whoever, you know, oftentimes there's a an editor behind them. That there's somebody they work right. with steadily and constantly that learned about you know how they wrote. But they, if they didn't have them, their writing would not be as nearly as good as it is. The editors are very important. That's what. Uh, I've worked with people in the book world, you know, especially English people are bad on this, where you say, okay, I'm editing your book, and this is like, you need to change this, or this is not clear, whatever. They go, what? You know, this is like, like they treat all their writing like holy writ somehow. Right. I think as a writer, if I get an editor, there's so okay, going to do this. I say, you know, look, it's going to be my name on the book. If you make me look smarter than I am, you know, have at it. I right? Mean, <laughs> exactly. Much, you know? <laughs> nope, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I've been fortunate to have a couple of good editors that made me sound a lot smarter than I really am. I love it. <laughs> but I like you're saying, it's, uh, you're not alone. I mean, I think there's some great writers, maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald or something. I remember the yeah, thing sure. with the, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. So, you know, he learned to write. Well, one of his exercises is that he typed out the Great Gatsby. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Because, it, you know, it's, it's like artists where they say, I'm going to become a great artist. So I'm going to copy master masterworks. Right? That's typical in art. Uh, right. They try to imitate Leonardo da Vinci or whatever they're doing. Sure. Right. And, uh, and in this case, I mean, you can write and say, if you copy out great writing, then you, your fingers, your whole, everything just kind of absorbs that, uh, the syntax and everything, but, you know, learning how to, uh, to write that way. But that was an exercise he did. So he transcripted it. I had to do that with John Keel before for a publisher. I had to read a lot of articles of John Keel, so I had to like go oh, no. over all his words. It's kind of weird for sure. It felt weird. <laughs> which, one, which of his books did you do? Because I love John Keel. Um, it was a lot of like articles. Andy Colvin, the, the Mothman photographer who I've uh -huh. done some books with. Uh, a lot of it's just transcripts of these shows and interviews. Uh, there's a price for the oh, Mary cool. Man, the Secret Life of Bigfoot. But I he has a lot of John Kill books. If you look up Andrew Colvin or Andy Colvin on, I think it's Andrew Colvin, mm -hmm. uh, the Mothman photographer. It's on Am Amazon. Uh, all those books will come up that he does. He reissue with John Kill, and a lot of them is like obscure John Kill stuff, like articles from different things. And uh, who's a uh, Gray Barker? I had to do a lot of that too. Yeah, right. So those. I, I hate transcripting. I had to listen to interviews for that Bigfoot book and. 
type it out while you listen. And I actually hit a door and, and hurt my hand, which that's something I don't normally go around hitting stuff, but that <laughs> transcripting <Right>? sucks. <laughs> sucks. Trey Barker but, was an interesting figure. Yeah. He's got to coin the term men in black. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, in the 50s. Apparently with the Russian test, I mean, the, the test that went off in Nevada, Russia just revoked that global nuke test ban an hours after we decided to do it, I guess, in retaliation. This is just oh, getting boy. worse and worse every day. It's like Hezbollah firing on Israel, like we Iran shock troopers. What's happening? All <laughs> shit's breaking loose. There's gonna be the, we're going to have uh, the amazing colossal man now out there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully if only that would be that cool but one thing i wanted to talk about i know you mentioned hammer uh, uh a good bit yeah and a plague of the zombies i love all that stuff i have got to watch some hammer during october for my halloween binging for sure but how what's some of those that you grew up with or remember well, that was uh my father he just on a lark he was just gonna say okay i'm just kind of a kind of a rite of passage or an unintentional he's going i'm gonna take the kid to see the scary movies you know so he took me to uh, and he liked it, you know because he said oh these monsters this is ridiculous you know but uh the uh, it was a double feature a brides of dracula and the leech woman and uh so brides of dracula was one of my first uh, you know uh, films i saw there in the theater and that those hammer films have such a rich feeling, you know. That, and they, when you see them in the theater, you know that kind of uh, the coldness of the theater. They're very air conditioned and the plush kind of carpets, as well as with the gum on the floor. But uh, you know, it was like that whole hammer aesthetic and the theater kind of just amalgamated, you know, in your mind and your sensory that it was very much a part of that but uh my, my father he would say okay I mean, he would see those scary parts coming up so then he would say i'll be back in a minute he'd go to the back of the theater and watch me how i was reacting you know looking down between the seats or whatever you know i was like six seven years old right. so, but uh, you know the hammer films i you know i they're good but uh you know there's uh something about them that you know is not as good as you know the universal film uh, they're 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 luxurious and all of that but uh, i think a lot of it like oh, why why did christopher lee you know portray dracula in that way i mean he you know this kind of animalistic dracula when he was perfectly capable of you know i mean to hear him tell it was like oh i just didn't you know want to make uh it wasn't close enough to the literary literature to be respectable so he kind of made him into almost like a werewolf i mean it's an animal but he's like dressing you know in evening wear so i mean it's like but and I because, love, because you're right he could have done the uh, the other dracula so sure. well you yeah. know yeah such a good point and, uh, uh curse of the werewolf uh, was one of my favorites as a kid. I have a story in there about kind of similar thing. I was seen in the theater. I was going, uh, uh, we were going to visit my mother and it was some family friends. And my mother says, don't tell the kids 
they were going to the movies because they will want to come and their father just lets them go to Disney movies and so we can't, you know, do that. But of course, I, being a kid, spilled the beans and so we're going to go to the movies. So they went to the movie, but they'd never seen these other kids things like that. So they were freaking out, you know, and this uh, one kid, my friend is about my age, he would hide, he'd hide his eyes, not watch. And then at a certain moment, he did watch it and he hollered out in the theater. I had the guts to watch it that time, Aunt Betty. <laughs> and God, the whole theater started laughing. You know. But uh, so kids, you know, in, in movies, yeah. like that, they were, uh, they're profoundly, uh, it wasn't like just sitting there watching it in your living room on a DVD or whatever. It was the theater experience is missing for us now so much. And that, that's also something that's been lost that was uh, important. Even the uh, drive-in theater, they'd have six, you go see six horror movies in a night, you know, all night long, you know, and uh, oh. these kind of things, and you know, just experiences. That's, that's kind of that William Castle chapter where the theater going, he took it to the next level and made things happen for the view, for the person, uh, for the uh, for the viewer, for the audience that were to the next level of shocking them in the seats and things like that. Right. Idle thirteen ghosts was something my father took me to see. Had the view, you know, thing, the view, both ghost view, that sort of thing, and it was just something special, you know. William yeah. Castle. And I love William Castle movies a whole lot. Uh, just for, for that, but uh, it's weird though. He, he was uh, very obsessed with money. If you see that every story, every film has something to do with money, with money being swindled, lost, whatever. Like uh, Mr. Sardonicus, right? There's a lottery ticket that is, is this guy's father's. Uh, vest pocket when he dies and so the son goes and digs him up to get it but sees his father's rotting corpse and everything it's suffers from facial paralysis from the trauma you know but uh, he's going for that lottery ticket it's some kind of money or a house on haunted hill with a the millionaire you know maybe to spend the night here and get this money and you know there's uh, every one of them Kind of interesting. I need to get into William Castle more. I bought a collection. Yeah. I've always heard of them, but I don't know if I've ever seen them. The uh, Haunting of Hill House. Uh, I mean, the uh, one you mentioned, House the Haunting. House. Oh, that's that's him too. Uh, William Castle. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I'll have to get into those for my Oktoberfest. The Tingler. The Tingler was one. That's one where they shocked everybody, right? With, with the seats. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it, it was in black and white, but in a certain moment. When blood was there, it, they, it was it was in color. I mean, the red was on the screen, right? So that if you, it's kind of I think most versions of it on TV are in color, or colorized, or you know they don't do that necessarily. Right. But you know, like a lot of these old films, Phantom of the Opera, when it's seen originally of uh, at the better, uh, more mainstream theaters, was had a lot of color. They, they had to hand tint every frame, but the inside, right. you know, or, or, uh, 
the German films, the Dr. Coll- the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, et cetera, they had color. I mean, they were like this green, they would be kind of green and, and black, white, all these kind of colors were typical of how they actually were experienced originally, not just black and white. There's a, um, it, it's only a couple of minutes long, uh, but there's uh, probably the earliest film adaptation of She by uh-huh. H. Ryder Haggard uh-huh. is 18, I think it's 1899. And it's what it, it's, they only do the, um, the sequence where she's in the pillar of flame. Uh-huh. And it's done with special effects. It was the same kind of special effects they were doing on the stage play at the time, um, where they basically used like red cloth and they were like making a billow so it looked like flames and she's in it or whatever. Um, and it's hand tinted and, and it's in, you know, so it's sort of color, right? It's really more like duotone or, you know, maybe three tones to it, right? But uh, it's incredible to see that. I think they literally went in there and hand tinted every single cell, you know, to create that effect. Um, 1899. You know, it's amazing they were doing that that early. Um, she is another uh, example of uh, the, uh, the immor- immortal and the reincarnation. She's the first, yes. you know, a reincarnated person right. that she finds, and she's been immortally living all these years. So right. You talk about it in your mummy chapter, you know, uh-huh. as a precursor to that idea. For me, one of the, I love it. I, uh, I love she. In some ways, it's the first fantastic archaeological story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh-huh. I mean, you can, you can, King Solomon Mines predates it, right? So, kind of that's there. But with she, literally, the MacGuffin is a pot shirt. Uh-huh. You know, it just doesn't get any more archaeological than that, right? This is the beginning of that whole, you know, where we we get, you know, Raiders of Lost Ark from this, right? This whole idea, you know, the fantastic archaeology story. So just for me personally, I have a big soft spot in my heart for she. I love it. Uh, I've collected almost every edition of that I can get. I've got, uh, yeah, I got the first edition. I've got the, um, I have a 1894 poster from one of the stage play versions of it that may be the only one in existence. Um, So, yeah, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe I'm Haggard reincarnated. I don't know, but I got a, I have an obsession for she for whatever reason for that story. One incredibly popular story, right? That was done. You know, Miriam Cooper did a version. Hammer did a version with Ursula Andress. You know, but it's almost forgotten today. Yeah. Um, you know, at one time this was an incredibly popular story. It was as popular as Dracula or Frankenstein or some of these others who can call She who must be obeyed. She who must be obeyed. Ayesha. <laughs> you know. <laughs> She's the uh, the prototype for Law of Opar, you know, from Burroughs and the Tarzan stories. Um, you know, Howard has a version of Rocky Vasha, you know, this like immortal vampire, you know, one of the Conan stories, you know. So, so that she's an archetype as well, right? Mm-hmm. That sort of immortal, you know, lost goddess, you know, type figure. Yeah, for sure. You know. Oh. Well, you know, one thing we didn't talk about the zombies. Zombie chapter. I, I, we, we got eight minutes, so <laughs> fast. <laughs> fast zombies. No, that's <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, that, that was a real transformation of zombies uh, from uh, sugarcane slaves to uh, out of control consumers, literally. 
construction of your brain. (laughs) But I think it's a, well, that's a Richard Matheson who's such a tremendous writer, you know, being so important to the whole genre as far as a creative person, whereas uh, I Am Legend, uh, you know, was essentially, but he, he, when he wrote about, he didn't call them, he called them vampires. They were just, they were vampires. Right. In his story. And uh, of course that was a popular, made two versions of it right together, you know, pretty close together with uh, one with Vincent Price and one with uh, Charlton Heston, you know, and, uh, but that's the thing that transformed the zombie, the genre into something other than Afro-Caribbean folklore into right. the kind of killer, you know, consumers, which is... Talk about that that difference a little bit, for, because I think most modern people only know the post-Romero, post-Matheson style of zombie, right? I, I did right. a um, collection of zombie stories from Pulp Magazines, and so I, I'm familiar with the er, earlier Haiti voodoo sure. version. Talk sure. about the difference, right? Because it's very different, right? Well, that one is like with want slave labor right but it's also used by the uh you know voodoo priests as a form of punishment you know for people who uh, cross them or do whatever they're zombified and that uh, you know serpent in the rainbow story until it gets into that uh how it's supposedly done with uh, psychologically and pharmacologically and so forth but uh yeah, it's part of a uh, uh, folklore uh, or magic and religion of Afro-Caribbean people, especially in Haiti. And right. it had nothing to do with any of that. And again, like the, the, the I don't know who started, I think it's critics or uh, people writing about these things who started calling Matheson and Romero and those things as zombies. Right, it's more outside, and then it just took off. It just stuck, you know. Right. But uh, yeah, Night of the Living Dead is like the only movie I think that's ever really scared the crap out of me as a kid. Like yeah, like I was checking under beds and crying uh-huh. after, that, after that one. I recently watched uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, and they're just so good. There's something about them that's just powerful. Like uh, you feel weird afterwards for days <laughs> after watching them. But yeah, I, I love it. And they just did a creep show episode. That's a good show. I know there's the creep show movies, but they have a series of it now on Shutter, and it's uh, on season four. And they're just like two little stories, like Tales from the Crypt. But they did a Ramiro episode where they found an old comic and some 3D glasses, and the zombies came out, and all this crap happened. But they're fun to watch creep show. Uh, I've always cool. loved those creep show movies. Meteor shit. <laughs> you know, but uh, it was uh, Stephen King doing EC on EC comics on the screen, you know. Yeah, How do you yeah. Love that, you know. Well, uh, we got four oh, minutes. Okay. Uh, well, uh, well yeah, give us some links and everything. Yeah. Well, I'm happy. Uh, the book we're talking about, about uh, Gothic <laughs> Meditations at Midnight, is now, just as of yesterday, available on Amazon. So anybody can go and, uh, you know, get it there now. It was long in the making, but it's finally there. And uh, my, uh, do, do you put up a link, a links on your website or anything? 
Yeah, uh, just give us the link and I'll I'll, I'll say it. I'm going to say it more in some more shows as well for sure. Okay. And keep the word. I have out. A, a website where you can get most you know all of my books, uh, and that's uh, seekthemysteries.com. Seekthemysteries.com. Yeah, very that's cool. You can get it, and I'll just you know, and uh, that's that. And uh, of course, I have books. Uh, well, some of my more recent books. Uh, with inner traditions, here's one. The occult and national socialism. Oh, where is it? It's, uh, yeah, there we, we, there we go. Uh, that's that's a good one. Nazi that the whole episode on Nazi occult stuff. And that's yeah. deep. <laughs> yep. And this, uh, I think, uh, most people have read it. You know, saying this is you know goes beyond it because I. I have a whole annotated bibliography of all the books that are written on that subject and kind of what's wrong with them, you know, yeah. mean, and I have this kind of method of looking at it that goes, you know, there's a there's mythical thing, there's a scientific thing, and there's different, you know, most people just go into one thing. So, oh, like Guido von List is just, it's all, it's all about that or whatever. They just oh. get on a hobby horse. And say that, or uh, the Spear of Destiny, which is a work of fiction, right? That, that was born to in court that it was a work of right. Fiction. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, uh, this book I'm really uh, proud of. It worked a long, many years on that, just like the uh, the uh, Gothic Meditations at Midnight is a book that was long, you know, in the making. That's one of the things. I uh, some of my books I write fairly quickly uh, because I can just uh, fairly simple but some things have, have taken decades to research you know and, uh, definitely that's that's a deep yeah. subject all that Nazi that stuff was, I've had Peter Levinda yeah I've, sure. had, I've had Peter Levinda on I know that stuff man just thinking about it it's just a lot but, but uh, yeah a long time ago but yeah. uh, what's weird about him is he has a connection with that simon paperback which he might have uh -huh. been part of that collective there's definitely right? we got into that and he's kind of yeah. you don't want to talk about that tips around it so he yeah. also said mabus was a thought form that i made my own that drains me or something weird about me playing around with that mabus name i was on a lot of drugs when i did that but uh but anyway <laughs> I, now I liken it to ash and the necronomicon uh -huh. yeah, yeah yeah we have a guy that comes on i swear eric grimsrud he has a thing breaking down trump with the mabus using the drump drump acronym or whatever he breaks it down and it's creepy huh. like there's some creepy crap that Trumple Gooch might be Mapus. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, first off, Stephen, this is the greatest Halloween show ever. Like, oh. wonderful, the perfect book for this. Uh, and I appreciate it so much. You being part of my lineup, it's made it badass. And thanks to Don okay. Webb uh -huh. for uh, uh, letting me know about it. And uh, Don, of course, has co hosted with me and been on about vampire magic. He's been on so much, I've lost count. But uh, I think this is your second or third time. But it's just an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's seekingthemysteries.com for everybody. Gothic Meditations at Midnight. It's like the greatest Halloween book ever to come out to me. It's great. It's good. It's, it's really like good. watching a silent, cool ass. Nosferatu. <laughs> but uh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for having me. 
I really loved Thanks it. So much. Okay. And I, I posted this, this link on your wall and everything, and I'll, I'll send you the archives as I get them and stuff too. And okay. send them to you. But right. thank you so much. Thanks, right. everybody. You're listening to United Public Radio 10.7 FM, New Orleans. We're going to get into the actors. Was it Gunnar Hansen and Kane Hodder next week with Michael Aliosa, the guys that play these horror legends. So that's going to be good. And I love Halloween. So that's right. <laughs> stuff I got to catch up on uh, that I'm watching right now, horror stuff. But uh, everybody have a good weekend. Good night. Thanks, Jeffrey. Jeffrey and Jeffrey. Jeffrey. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.